Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Now, before we dive into today's interview, I just wanted to remind you of the upcoming Fiction Intensive Conference on November 5 and 6. It's virtual, so no matter where you are in the world, you can join us. We have a stellar faculty of world-class speakers, and there are still tickets available. So click to fictionintensive.com if you're interested for more info and to register. So if you're a writer of short stories, novels, screenplays, we feel like the the narrative principles we'll be sharing will benefit you and help elevate your storytelling. So now for my guest for today. A few years ago, a friend of mine recommended a book on screenwriting entitled Into the Woods, and I decided to check it out, and I found it very informative and thought-provoking, and I'm, I'm honored that the author, John York, is joining me today. John is managing director of both Angel Station and John York Story, where he works as a drama producer, consultant, and lecturer on all forms of storytelling. A former MD of Company Pictures, where he exec produced Wolf Hall, he's worked as both head of Channel 4 Drama uh, and controller for BBC Drama Production. As a commissioning editor, executive producer, he championed huge British hits such as Life on Mars, The Street, Shameless, and Bodies. And in 2005, he created the BBC Writers Academy, a year-long in-depth training scheme which has produced a generation of successful television writers, many of who have gone on to produce shows of their own. The author of Into the Woods, the biggest selling screenwriting book in the UK for the last six years, it's about all about how and why we tell stories. John is a double BAFTA winner as program maker and a multi BAFTA winner as commissioner. He consults on narrative across all broadcasting platforms and is also a visiting professor of English language and literature at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne. He lives in London and works as a story consultant worldwide. So John, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today from across the pond. Thank you, Stephen. My absolute pleasure. Well, congrats on your book and your success. I admit I hadn't heard of it until, I guess, probably a couple of years ago. I think it had been out for a number of years. And mm -hmm. um, so, like I said, I've really been enjoying it. What, what led you to write your, your book, Into the Woods, a five-act journey into story in, in the first place? Oh, well, it's a, it's a long story in itself. But <laughs> at the time, I, was, uh, I just left... Uh, Channel 4, which was a network in the UK uh, where I was head of drama, and I'd gone back to the BBC to look after a much bigger department, and I was really concerned about the standard of storytelling. Mm. It wasn't good enough, and it mm. felt like the department had expanded massively, but it hadn't really done any training, so there was a big, big skills gap. And uh, the, the, the TV we were making wasn't particularly high budget, so we couldn't go and poach loads of established writers. So the, <laughs> the, 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 effectively, the cheapest way of getting new writers is to train them. So, so I thought, oh, I'll set up a training course. And, uh, and so I did, and I didn't really know what I was doing, I realised all of a sudden, because I'd never 
trend. Well, I've, I've worked in telly for a long time, but I've never really analysed craft. Hmm. So I started off right, you know, sort of you're reading all the obvious books like Sid Field and Robert McKee and Chris Vogler and all those kind of things. But I was in this amazing position because I was making, I was in charge of making about 500 hours of television a year. Oh my goodness, and wow. So, which is, yeah, it was, it was my little toy set and it was a laboratory. So I could test every idea um, with real time writers and mm. see what worked. So basically I was road testing all of those books and then slowly I was starting to evolve my own theories uh, about it, you know, what worked with those books and what didn't, you know, and testing that. And yeah. then one day, one of my students turned out to be a former publishing director at Penguin, which is the biggest publishing house in England. And he said, you should write this down. And uh -huh. it sort of came for that. So very lucky. It's a, you know, there was no real skill involved, <laughs> you know, but it came out of that really. And so I wrote down the course effectively and then just added to it. Now, one of the things I noticed is it's one of the most, I would say, well-researched books on story and storytelling, screenwriting that I've ever come across. Like you mentioned some others um, that uh, I've had Chris Vogler on the show uh, on the Story Blender, and his book, The Writer's Journey, has been around for 25 yeah. years. A lot of people have benefited from his uh, book and others. And and um, so, but you've really taken a look at um, actually writing books and, and story structure, theories, and so on for thousands of years. You actually yeah. went back <laughs> over the centuries and uh, came up with some, some insights. And uh, I was just curious, how has the understanding of story from your perspective evolved over the centuries? Well, it's a great question. And I, I didn't mean to do that. I just went down a rabbit hole and once <laughs> start looking, you know, and if, yeah, well, yeah, one of the gaps in the storybook market was, was rigorous analysis with factual backup. And mm. I, so, so, and, and that's kind of my thing anyway. So you, you want to prove everything you write. So, so I went back and I went further back and actually, you know, it's all there in Aristotle. It goes back as far as that, you know, he's right <laughs> like, about most of it, but there's this real explosion of books and writing about writing um, in the 19th century, in the mid to late 19th century, as theatre becomes the dominant sort of middle-class mm. art form of the day. And it's really there that lots of really interesting things start to happen uh, and people start to write playwriting books. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's there's two or three, some, some really, really good ones. Uh, and then that leads into... Um, the fantastic book um, by Eeps Winthrop Sargent, which is the first screenwriting book, which is written around the silent era. Oh, uh, sure. Uh -huh. And it's, it's amazing. And so you read all this stuff and then, you know, you just dig deeper and you start to discover that, you know, Robert McKee didn't invent the inciting incident. People were talking about the inciting incident in 1835. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and it's great. In fact, if you look at the back of the book, there's a, and, and my favorite bit is actually the notes section of the back because I'm so uh -huh. geeky. Yeah, there's a whole history of the inciting incident in the back of in the notes at the back, which is the thing I'm probably most proud of in the entire book. <laughs> well, I know we're, you know, some people might be listening to say, why are they geeking out about inciting <laughs> incidents? Like what is going on? But but stories, all stories start somewhere. They start very often with disruption of normal world or there might be action occurring, um, but something 
kind of ratchets things and moves them into, you know, a new direction. And, uh, you know, as, as John, as you mentioned, um, Aristotle really emphasized in his book Poetics so many years ago, the idea that stories are causally related, that one event causes the next, and then they culminate finally in a moment after which nothing is logically um, I would say reasonable to happen after that moment. And so this idea of causality or contingency within stories is something that's really vital to stories. It's just really not taught as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of books don't cover it even at all. And if they do, it's, it's, it's only in passing. So l- let's talk for just a second about this idea of stories being connected through cause and mm-hmm. effect instead of coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. What's yeah. your what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I actually the, the people who said this best were were um uh Matt Snow and Trey Parker, the South Park guys. They, they do a really great talk about the, the the importance of each scene is caused by the previous scene. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that, you just have a series of incidents. And that's not a story. You know, the story is as, exactly as Aristotle said, exactly as you put it so brilliantly, which is just, it's a series. It's, it's, a, it's a chain of cause and effect, you know, and each scene has to happen because of the previous scene. If you take one of those scenes out, then the story shouldn't work, which is how you know whether a scene is useful or not. Take it out and see what happens. There was some research I was reading recently um, about how people process stories and even children process this idea of struggles within stories, that mm. stories have to have something that goes wrong. And and um, so the example given was the king died and the queen died. You're like, mm. OK, well, that's a series of events. But it's, if it's a story, it's not very interesting. Yeah. But if you say the king died and then the queen died from grief. Yeah. Then they're causally related. Then one leads to the next and you have the genesis of the story. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's such a brilliant definition. I think I think that's absolutely right. Um, and so stories, you know, something happens, gets things moving. And then uh, a story also, I think, has to have this struggle within it. It isn't just about, you know, character pursuing something with no setbacks. Um, and so they struggle and things get harder and harder for yeah. our character, you know, as he's trying to work his way through toward whatever goal he has in mind. Um, are there any things that you've found in your research regarding this idea of setbacks, obstacles, struggles that might be helpful for someone maybe who says, you know, I want to write a screenplay or I have a novel in mind. You know, people always say it should have conflict. Yeah, And I mean, my view is that it needs tension and that conflict doesn't necessarily include tension. In other words, you can have stuff, bad stuff happening to someone, but if he doesn't try to resolve it, it's just a litany of bad things happening. So, so it has to have the desire for something, you know, different and that creates the tension. Yeah. I think it's desire met by obstacle. 
yeah isn't it there it's you the go. fusion yeah. of the two that, that come together no i mean there's so much to say about that um it sounds may sound like a bit of a detail but you said originally about uh disruption and um you know the 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 the, the, the narratologists of the 1960s and 1970s talked about this there's a guy you probably know called todorov uh and he's i mean it's very intellectual very highbrow stuff but he talks about stories as disruptions and he talks mm. about he talks about what he doesn't call it the inciting incident he calls it the disruption but he talks about a thing in the middle of the story which we would call the midpoint mm. and he calls rather brilliantly he calls the recognition of the disruption huh and 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 that's amazing but that recognition of disruption is effectively an obstacle and that obstacle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, the best metaphor I had for storytelling was it's like a snow, the force of antagonism are like a snowball at the top of a mountain and you're chasing the snowball down and it's getting bigger and bigger and you're trying to stop it. So when stories build up and they come to what you might refer to as the midpoint or the culmination of tension or whatever, however, you know, you refer, might phrase that what why is that such an important moment in in stories uh well it's the moment i mean there's a number of reasons it's the moment where everything changes isn't it it's the moment where suddenly um the the task is different and much harder so Mm. it's you know it's the moment where uh, the titanic hits the iceberg Mm. it's the moment where elliot takes et into the forest and says when they phone home it's it's so so that it's the moment in moonlight really good example where he kisses the boy for the first time Mm. um so everything changes at that moment so so that's the that's the sort of like lay interpretation what the really interesting thing about midpoints is of course they are the absolute opposite of the character state at the beginning. It mm. forces them to embrace their absolute opposite. So it is always, you know, the classic screenwriting question is what is your character most fear? That's what they encounter in the middle of the story, in, in the heart of the woods. So that's, that's the simplistic way, but it's, I think it works quite well. Yeah, nice. So yeah, I've told people sometimes if you know what a character fears, you'll know what they often need to face. If you know what they, if you, if you know what they desire most, you'll also know what they fear most because whatever they desire most, they fear the opposite. Right. And yeah. so, you know, if I desire freedom, then I fear being captured or whatever it might be. So, so the, those are good questions. I think for people who write to ask themselves, what is the desire of my character? What is the fear of my character? What do they love or pursue as, yeah. as well as avoid? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're very key. Um, Now, one of the things you explore in your book is actually this difference between desire and need uh, with the main character. So could you unpack that a little bit? And um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and actually that ties in with the midpoint really well as well. So I'll try and pull all those things together. So so uh, let's take a, a film that most people will know, like a Pixar film, let's say Cars. You know, so Lightning McQueen wants to win the Piston Cup. He's got to get to the other side of, of, of the States to, 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 to rerun the final, which is this time he's going to win. So that's his conscious want and it's ego driven. Uh, that's not what he needs. What he needs is, is to recognize that there's something deeper inside him that's the, 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 that needs healing and needs um, uh, coming to terms with and recognizing. And that is that winning is not important. Winning is a substitute for something more personal, more intimate, which is mm. friendship, 
empathy with other people. You know, in all those Pixar films, every single Pixar film is about a benevolent dictator who wants something to portray their benevolent dictatorship and they go on a lesson to learn actually they don't need that, that sharing intimacy is, is more important as well. Sadness is, is more important. So, I mean, that's the fundamental thing. So in the classic archetype, the ego-driven goal is abandoned um, for something more substantial. And that's like Rocky. So Rocky loses, but he gains his self-esteem. Um, my favourite example is Little Miss Sunshine. If if if, if <laughs> we're old enough to remember that, you know, they the the, the utterly dysfunctional fan of. Uh, family enter a talent competition um, and they by the end of the film they realise they don't need to win the talent competition because they're not a dysfunctional family anymore. Mm. They found a way to come together. It's beautiful. And he wrote Toy Story um, 3 or 4 as well, didn't he? So, same guy. So, uh, character begins, uh, some people will call it a flaw or a misbelief or a lie that they're believing. Different story theorists have different ways of encapsulating this idea and through facing their fears and so on, typically things change for them. Now, what I'm curious a little bit about is what is it that makes that pivot? What, what is it? What, what, what about that moment where they've worked really hard? Do they just work a little bit harder or does something have to pull the rug out from under them? What's sort of your take on that moment where things do change in their perspective? Okay, well, the best definition of, of, of what makes a character change that I can come with, I mean, it's like real life. You know, if you, if you believe one thing, why do you change it? You change it because you have to, mm. to achieve your goal. So, so, so for example, if you, if you lived in the United Kingdom in the last three years, loads of people voted to leave the European Union. Mm-hmm. When do you change your mind uh, about that? you change your mind when you see that leaving the European, European Union has destroyed your job. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? So, so effectively, the, the way we all change our minds is we're brought face to face with the consequences of not changing. So the screenwriter's art, it's just brilliant in screenwriting. You confront your character with an image that tells them that if they don't change, they're never going to feel good about themselves. They're never going to feel happy. They're never going to profit. Uh, and my favourite illustration of that, it's really tiny, but it's uh, if you go all the way back to Jaws, uh, and Chief Brody is really reluctant to engage in chasing this shark. And then um, he's confronted on the dock by a widow, mm. the, the widow of the boy who was eaten by shark. And she's it's just this image of all in black and she slaps him. Hmm. And at that moment, he realizes he has to change. Hmm. So he decides to go out and get the shark at that point. And that's a brilliant, it's a brilliant illustration of that idea, which is you confront somebody um, with the consequences of not changing. Because hmm. if they don't change, I'm going to drown, for example. Now, um, of course, there are you know different perspectives. Some people will say that stories are there to change characters. Some will say stories are there to reveal characters. And <laughs> I mean, um, the big question that I would ask it, related to that is, is how do you understand change within a character that's a series character? I mean, in your book, you mentioned yeah. James Bond or some other, you know, they're very popular series characters, say Sherlock Holmes or... Um, anyway, um, whoever it might be, when we come back to their books or uh, their movies or 
their episodes, episodic television. We don't necessarily come because they're fundamentally different in each episode or each book, but basically because they're fundamentally the same in a certain sense that we want to spend time and see what they're capable of, who they're becoming, all of those kind of things. So, so yeah, just to address the idea of the question of change within a series character, how does sure. that play out? Well, it's a brilliant question because it's like all of drama is about the manipulation of change and change is your friend, but it's also your enemy <laughs> uh, as well. And so you have to understand what you're making. If you're making the kind of shows like Sherlock or we talk about James Bond or whatever, you know, fun, I mean, there are exceptions, but largely they don't change. They never change. And you don't want them to change because then James Bond who changed wouldn't be James Bond. Mm. You know, so, yeah. so, so, but what change still occurs, but you know, in Sherlock Holmes, he doesn't change. What changes is what well, at the beginning of the, uh, of, of the story, he doesn't know who the killer is or who, what the crime is, and mm-hmm. he does. So, what changes in what I call two-dimensional storytelling is knowledge of. Mm-hmm. So, Hercule Poirot will never change, but he will discover a new clue at the midpoint of the story. He will discover the key clue, even if he doesn't quite yet know what that means. So, it echoes change in three dimensions, but fundamentally, they don't change. They solve the crime mm-hmm. um and in the classic storytelling uh it's yeah a character learns and changes and then it's over and that's it where we get into really interesting territories with um television is mm-hmm. trying to manipulate that because you know you like you know you do big little lies series one okay well they want series two because it's a big hit they're <laughs> like they've already changed like are you in trouble here and you see a lot of people get this wrong you know it's like writing david copperfield too i mean just don't just don't do it but you know there's so much money in television so like you know like you know they should controversial opinion they should have only ever made one series of the affair because it, <laughs> it was over if you know that glorious french show les revenants the first scene is about, it's about dead kids coming back to, to life in a, in a little French town. It's amazing. Mm. First season, it's one of the greatest TV shows ever made. Second season, it's just garbage because they've done it. Mm. Nothing there. It's, I mean, it's really instructive to watch, but you see that with a lot. I mean, Big Little Eyes, I think they just about get away with it. But, you know, what it is all about is it's all about planning before you start. You know, if you're as clever as Vince Gilligan, <laughs> and you go, okay, it's five seasons, and he's Mr. Chips, he's Scarface, and that's it. You know, for breaking um, for breaking bad, yeah. For breaking bad, yeah. And so, you know, like you, you know, you've got to look at um what you've got. And you know, th- when I was a commissioning editor, I, my question was always, okay, well, what's series five? What's series six? And we had to answer that before we went any further. Hmm. And the answer could be, well, there isn't one. Yeah. Uh, and that and and that's fine as well. But you know, most people want volume, so I think you know you you get. I mean, I love. There's a great quote from uh, I think Bob Daly is the the Desperate Housewives showrunner, and he just said, "I can't think of anything else to do. <laughs> We've run out. There aren't any more natural disasters we can have, you know. And it's just like you know, you run out unless you built it into the DNA at the beginning. You run out, so you've got to know how to process change." There's a, a I, there's a series of books that I wrote featuring an FBI agent, Patrick Bowers, and there are 11 books in the series. And so it finally came to the point where it, it, it relates to what you just said. I didn't feel like that the series could really be honest and believable and move forward with a lot more books because I'd tapped into kind of all of the directions that I wanted 
this character to develop or grow or whatever. And, um, and also what, you know, asking narrative uh, questions as far as tension and stuff. I was like, I think I've covered what works in this, in this realm, in this world, in 11 books. And people are like, <laughs> when's the next one come out? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, you and, I think you and Conan Doyle both went through the same <laughs> thing. Didn't you? But it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, if I, if I may, uh, let me tell you a story about an English show. Cause it's really fascinating. And, and, and it's no use. You just cut it. But um, there was this really popular situation comedy called only fools and horses. It was a hmm. big show. It was half hours. The characters never changed. They sort of existed outside of time. They had adventure of the week. It was like, you know, Dragnet, you know, or mm-hmm. the characters never changed. It was comedy. The show got more and more popular. And then one day the writer, a guy called John Sullivan, he went to the BBC and he said, give me 50 minutes. Let's not do 30. Give me 50. And they said, why? And they said, I want these characters to grow old. I want these characters to get married. I want their friends to die. I want to give them children. I want to introduce change into this universe. Uh, And they said, because he was, you know, he was a clever guy. They said, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. And so they expanded the show to 50 minutes, uh, gave it loads more depth, loads more pathos. People died, children were born, and it went absolutely stellar. It was the biggest show in the Hmm. UK. Christmas Day, you know, it was 30 million people watching, which is half of the UK population. Mind-boggling. But you run out, he ran out of stories Mm. because they grew old. They achieved their desires. You know, the the desire always was this time next year, Rodney, we're going to be millionaires. And they became millionaires. (laughs) And then there was nowhere to go. And so what you're doing is you're making the show much richer by introducing mortality into it. But you're, but by introducing mortality into it, change mm-hmm. is is the, there's only one answer to mortality, which is death, <laughs> and so that's the thing you're juggling, you know, and that's why you end up with you know the famous jumping the shark hmm. stuff because it's, it's about manipulating change. One of that's all very interesting to me, and uh, because uh, very often when I interview people, talk with authors, and so on, this idea comes up of you know change and dimensionality and and all of these things and. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, television today is such a powerful, you know, storytelling medium. And um, and when uh, showrunners go to go to a producer or so on, they're not just necessarily interested in five episodes or 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 one season. But where will this be in what you said, five or six yeah. years? Where will we be? Um, great mm-hmm. questions to to ask and to, and to address. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think a clarity about that, you need you need to build that into the show at the very beginning because if you make it up people always spot it, people <laughs> always spot it. and, it, and it, the show dies yeah i've seen some of those shows <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've made some of them <laughs> oh, yeah, well. <laughs> um oh in your book you mentioned uh rubber ducky moments which oh, i yeah. felt was wonderful uh can you tell us a little bit more about what that means and how oh it, yeah you know, that's an american that's an American friend. That's Sidney Lumet, the great Sidney <laughs> Lumet, uh, who is still my favourite director. I think an amazing director. And Paddy Chayefsky, wasn't it? Who um, you know wrote Marty and Network and uh, and they they it's it's brilliant because they 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 noticed this tendency in dramas, which you still see all the time, which mm-hmm. is two thirds of the way through a film, 
around the crisis point of the story, a character gives a big monologue about their past, which explains why are they are so wounded as a character. And, you know, Sidney Lumet and Mark Padishewski looked at this and they went, this is just nonsense. It's like, it's self-indulgent. It gets in the way. It doesn't help at all. And do the audience need to know? No. So they call it the rubber ducky moment, which is the slang for the, you know, you know, the reason I am so damaged and awful is because somebody took my rubber ducky away from me when I was a baby. I love it. Yeah. It's brilliant. And they're right. You don't really need it. There's a real temptation to write it, you know, and yeah, James Bond has had that creeping into him. You know, I was an orphan. Uh You know, that kind of thing. I mean, James Bond's a really good illustration of that tendency for all that stuff to creep in nowadays. Yes. Fascinating. When I read about that, I was thinking of Hannibal Lecter and the sounds of the lambs and how in the, in the first move, well, not the first Manhunter, I guess, was first. But anyway, in The Silence of the Lambs and some of the other movies, you don't really know what makes him a monster. It's it's a mystery. Um, Or the the Dark Knight with Joker and Batman. So Joker shows up and he's kind of this force of nature. Where'd he come from? Well, he gives different rubber ducky moments. This happened. (laughs) Then he lies and he says, this happened. And we don't really know. Yeah, and I I think the mystery about that makes them more frightening to me and that when they started to do movies where they tried to explain why Hannibal Lecter was the way he was I think in Hannibal Rising it just didn't feel satisfying to me I think that's absolutely right and I think you know what the the history of screenwriting to some degree is the history of people understanding how different a medium it is from theater Mm. and slowly realizing all the things you don't need in screenwriting. Mm. So pure screenwriting. And you know, your American director, Walter Hill, talks about this really well, that realisation that you remove all explanation. You know, you remove um, all exposition, uh, you know, as much as humanly possible. So the, the story is absolutely pure. It is a, it's a character in pursuit of a goal, and you infer everything you need to from their actions, but you don't explain it. It's like you don't explain Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. And I think that that's pure screenwriting in a sense. And I find that very attractive because you want to know, mm. but that's fine. Don't, don't Then I'll keep watching, but you'll never tell me, okay, I'll know, I'll have to watch again. <laughs> um, I think, I, I mean, when I read that, it really reflected kind of my perspective. Um, and I think that what some people say motivation is so vital to your character. Why do they do what they do? And in order to show that motivation, they always drop back into backstory or an origin story. Well, why is he a deranged killer? Someone took his rubber ducky. Why is he a mass murderer? Because he wasn't hugged enough when he was five. Uh, Whatever it is, whatever they come up with, then as an audience, we're supposed to say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense because... Or it's facile, it's facile, or it's yeah. stupid, or it's just a, the ideology the writer believes in. Like, yeah. and it's like oh, oh, it was capitalism. Well, okay, all right. I mean, it, it's it's trite and it's it's not real. So yeah. I think you're ab- absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, there are glorious exceptions that you just about get away with. I mean, Robert Shaw in Jaws, the US Indi- SS Indianapolis speech mm. is a kind of version of that. Yeah, yeah. And it works largely because he's eating the scenery and it's like <laughs> so compelling as an actor, but it really shouldn't work. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, no, this is interesting. And um, and you mentioned a little bit ago about theater, uh, drama, screenwriting, and so on. Do you see different storytelling dynamics at play in writing stories for, say, the screen versus maybe a novel or spoken word storytelling or or theater? Well, yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, there is a there is a significant difference, although the underlying structure, I think, is the same. I mean, you know, I mean, I spent, you know, my book is called A Five-Act Journey Story because I approach it through what I discovered about the structure of Shakespeare, which is, turns out to be the same as The Godfather, turns out to be um, the same as everything else. But fundamentally, I mean, the key difference is, is obviously, you know, cinema at its purest is a, is a purely visual medium and mm. communication is visual, where theatre is obviously dialogue. Yep. Um, because you can't see the faces, and that's so profoundly significant. Um, the key thing with novels is you know, the difference between novels and, and and cinema is you have to have an active protagonist in cinema, mm. but in a novel you don't because the narrator or the narrator's voice can provide that dynamism for you. And it's why, you know, I always say, like, don't film The Great Gatsby. But just don't, because it's not going to work because you haven't got an active protagonist. You know, the actual protagonist is the voiceover, you know, yeah, and that's going to work. Yeah. Just, just stop the, you know, and again, you just kind of wish people would see this stuff going, like, don't spend 40 million making that rubbish. You know, it's, like, you know, it's because it's not going to work unless you, you, it will never be the same. You have to do something very different if you're going to do it. I think you're right. And, and, you know, as a novelist, uh, you're able to actually explore the thoughts in the inner world of the characters in a way that's difficult uh, in yeah. film because you have to visualize or uh, um, basically physicalize everything. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. 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 All yeah. screenwriting is, is turning in a, in a life into external action. Um, yeah. There's a great Ilya Kazan quote. He says it's uh, turning psychology into behavior. Hmm. A love. He's brilliant. Turning psychology into behavior. I like it. That's good. Right. Really good. Um, one, uh, one question that I had as I was reading your book, you bring up something that you call subversion of expectation. Uh-huh. Now, for people listening, they might say, what in the world? Is <laughs> subversion yeah, of expectation. Sorry. Talk us through what you mean by that in regards to the flow of a story. Okay. Well, Oh, where can I start? I mean, there, there are there are classic and famous uh, subversions, you know, subversions of exposition everywhere you choose to look. If you take, you know, I mean, the famous ones. It's like in Terminator Two. You know, the first act is built around thinking Arnie is. Hmm. Uh, the bad guy and then he turns out to be the good guy that's a classic subversion of expectation but subversion of expectation is actually not just a trick it's actually a really profound unit because you know without trying to get too convoluted every scene at its purest is a kind of subversion of expectation okay because you exist and then something happens that changes everything in every scene, every that's the reason why the scene is there. And at its purest, that moment is a subversion of expectation. So somebody pulls the rug away, somebody pulls the rug away. And you're so it, it, actually what you're looking at, if you want to get really purist about it, um, every scene is a mini inciting incident. And, and, that's, and it's purist. That's a subversion of expectation. That's what an inciting incident is. It's like the moment of Thelma and Louise where bang, she pulls the gun. But in every scene. No, Does that make sense? If I described that well, it's quite a convoluted idea. It's easier to visualize. 
No, I do. I, and I actually totally agree because, you know, I've taught twists uh, for years and a lot of people will say, well, does your story need a twist? I'll hmm. say, yes. Well, and then I'll say what you just said, like in a sense, every scene needs a twist. And yeah. we're basically talking about the same thing, just giving it different, you know, names, a twist for, yeah, it's so on. Sorry. I'm so sorry, Steve. I get so excited. I talk over you. <laughs> like, oh me. no, you're fantastic. No, it's, it's great. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, uh, oh, I mean, the, the subversion of expectation is the basic mechanism of a joke. You know, if you look at any joke, that's what a subversion of expectation is. And it's exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same uh, technique. You know, you jump out of a plane, your ripcord isn't working. You know, that's a subversion of expectation. Like, whoa, onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. So, so I'm, I'm waffling slightly, but that's fundamentally what you're looking for. Is that, is that joke mechanism creates this enormous narrative drive. Yeah, you know, if you get subversion after subversion after subversion, and it goes all the way back to um, Greek, the Greeks, uh, and you, the, you know, the, 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 the Greek drama is fundamentally. Uh, the, I'm trying to remember the terms. It's peripatia is a reversal. And so characters undergo huge reversals. You know, I mean, the Greeks just did these twists brilliantly. You know, you, yeah, yeah, you're not my son. You, you, you're, you're not my lover. You're my son. It's the, you know, like, oh, my God, you just killed me, Dad. Like, you know, like, you know, they, you know they all appear in soap nowadays, but they're the same thing. And that's called peripatia. So the Greeks have twists followed by a thing called agnoresis, which means learning. Hmm. So you learn from the twist. And that's the fundamental unit of Greek drama, but it's the fundamental unit of all drama, really. Sometimes uh, I kind of explain it to people as if there are narrative forces. It sounds a little bit strange, maybe, but like, let's say that we're all standing around pressing in on a big ball of clay. You have dialogue, <laughs> tension, you have a surprise, you have causality or contingency, like we talked about earlier. It's all pressing in and that every story will look a little bit different because It'll have a different pressure of believability here or escalation there. And, mm -hmm. and those two aspects, I think, that create those twists or those subversions of expectation are moments where it's unexpected and yet inevitable. So yeah. that when it happens, it. yeah, when it happens, we're like, yes, totally makes sense. But we didn't see it yeah. coming. And those yeah. are wonderful moments. And and like you said, every scene, in a sense, should have that. Otherwise, it's too predictable um, or we know exactly where things yeah. are going to go and they do. It's pure writing, isn't it? That you, you said it brilliantly. It's that magical moment where you go, oh, my God, of course. Uh -huh. And that's it. And, yeah, I mean, that's Greek fundamentally. And it's really hard to do because it means embracing all the mechanics of plot and you know it's 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 really high level technique you know to get those i mean you see them in you know the the i mean this the end of the sixth sense would be oh my god of course they did you know uh and it's all about sleight of hand but that's amazing craft technique but the real craft technique is if you could do that all the way through you know and there's very few writers who are at that level because as you point out, when, when we as readers or viewers approach a story, we do have certain expectations. We basically either based on the packaging, the marketing, the genre, whatever it is, we expect things to go a certain way. James Bond movie, we expect something different from, a, a, let's say, a Hallmark Christmas uh, special. We, we come to it expecting the lovers will fall in love at the end and live happily ever after or whatever it might be. We expect car chases and so on. 
And um, one thing that I've always tried to tell people, which sounds a little strange, but I always in my writing workshops, I say, try to give readers what they want or something better, which, you know, you're like, well, what do you mean? Well, give them what they come to your genre for or uh, surprise them with something even better than they anticipated. And I think a lot of it has to do with understanding what are these people coming to this story for now, now that I kind of have an idea, how can I actually surprise them and satisfy them by, by doing that twisting things into unexpected. Yeah. yeah. Logical areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a real skill. I'll tell you who was really good at it. Uh, Paul Haggis. Um, some of his screenwriting, like Crash does it. I mean, I know Crash is more of a contentious film nowadays, but it is full of the most amazing twists. And um, uh, there's two other films he did. The, the Valley of Ela is a really good example of that. And Million Dollar Baby is just one amazing twist after another. I think he's a real craftsman. I think when you mentioned Crash, is that the one that won the Academy Award? Because uh, there were several movies called Crash. I yeah. actually really feel like that movie, one of the things that I've, I enjoyed about it, I, some people, there's some controversy, as you mentioned, about some of the scenes and so on. But if, I feel like what brings tension to every scene in that movie is you have two characters who both want something and they, it's mutually exclusive. If I get what I want, you're not getting what you want. If you get what you want, I'm mm -hmm. not getting what I want. And I believe every single scene has that, yeah. that mutually exclusive, exclusive tension within it. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that works so well. And some of the shows that I've been watching lately, you don't have that. You have the, the good guy, the baddie, whatever the bad guy. And then it's clear. And, um, there's not that really depth to characters we care about saying, I really care about this character, this other one, but one of them's going to come out yeah. dead and one's, one's not. Well, yeah. It, I mean, it, it's a more sophisticated level of writing, which is you're granting the, the rights of humanity to everybody. Mm. And, and, and actually that's where it gets really interesting. Cause actually the giving a right of humanity to your villain actually makes them a more significant villain. <laughs> you know, they're a greater force of antagonism because you know, I'm sympathizing with you now. That's not, you know, so, um, so yeah, Crash is really interesting. I mean, excluding the, the content of it in terms of just purely structural work, mm -hmm. it's quite beautiful. Uh, yeah. It's a Fabergé egg of a script. It's so intricately engineered. Uh, it's, it, it's very clever. Now, for people who might be listening and saying, oh, this is kind of, you know, really interesting and uh, it's a little, you know, esoteric, maybe, <laughs> but not, I don't think so. Oh, I think it's all very practical to me, but, but what are yeah. some of the first steps you might tell someone if they're starting to embark on writing a story of, of some type? Um, so in your, in your book, you ex examine kind of five different acts. Where would you tell someone to start with their story or maybe if they've written something analyze it to hopefully improve it uh okay i mean uh, two big questions i know it's, uh, it's, huge. <laughs> it's huge but no i mean what i say to people is what you know what are you angry about write about that you know hmm. is a normal starting point or, you know or what are you trying you know what do you want to tell other people i mean you don't get necessarily get great art out there but you get something uh 
interesting about it. I mean, for me, what I mean, one of the things I try to prove in the book is that actually structure is not something imposed from without. Structure mm. is a product of the human brain, and actually, we all do it, whether we're aware of it or not. You know, we just and we love structuring in simple binaries. We want to reduce the world to simple binaries that are symmetrical, because then the world is absolutely ordered and we can relax. Mm. So we all impose structure when we try and, if I convey reality to you, I impose a structure on the way I convey it to you. So what I'd say to people is, I mean, the, 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 the cliche is really, um, you know, stick a pen in your heart, just pour every all that rage and pain and anger onto the page and then mop up, you know, put that side <laughs> of your head away and put your structural brain on. Uh, and I go back and analyze because if your story has got the raw material, the structure will make that raw material um, far more easily digestible. Um, so you're using the different side of your brain. And so, you know, I never say to people start with structure because mm. I don't think that's because you perfect. You can have perfectly written scripts that are awful. Mm. You know, what you're looking for is a voice. Now, that's really interesting. So many um, writing instructors will at least speak to uh, novelists, but also I think screenwriters, and they'll say, you know, outline your story first, you know, outline. And um, and I personally, I'm organic. I, I've tried the outlining. It doesn't work for me. And there's many, many people that I know that it's not the approach that really benefits them. Yeah. Um, but the idea of starting with, you know, the raw emotion of what you, um, one way I've sort of put it over the years is what, what about this story is desperate to be told. And yeah. if you have a moment like that, mm. you can, you know, pursue the moment and then eventually you'll have to maybe say, okay, wait, um, does the story build in escalation? Is there that moment where things turn? And if not, how can we, you know, include those? But, but yeah. I like the approach of saying, look, start with this, whatever it is, that's you're passionate about. That doesn't mean that you're starting with an agenda necessarily, like trying to convince everyone of your point of view. No, I I, I think that's right. But I, I think people are normally amazed to look back and go, actually, this is, this is, this, you can see the structure in here. It's, mm. it, it's because I think, you know, as I said, I think it's intrinsic fundamentally. And then you finesse it with craft skills. Um, as I, as I, now I'm much more experienced. I mean, I've been doing this for years now. So, you know, like I can, I can take all kinds of short cuts and, you know, for me, I, you know, uh, if you get an idea, I'll immediately, you know, do, okay, that's the inciting incident. That's the crisis point, And that's the midpoint. I've got my shape then I can fill it in. I can work really quickly. So I can create stories really quickly using kind of mental algorithm, hmm. um, but I'm, you know, I'm not the world's greatest writer. I'm, you know, <laughs> modestly, I'm probably much better at teaching it than I am at doing it. I just know how to do it. And I, you know, because I grew up doing big epic storylining, long form storylining. Mm. That's how I learn. Um, and so you learn all those tricks. But I think what you, yeah, you're really after the, you know, like somebody who has something to say. I just think that's why, why write unless there's a wound that needs healing mm. or, or joy you want to share. I was, I like that, that wound that, um, that needs healing or a joy you want to share. In fact, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Feel free. It's yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll quote, I'll, I'll blur, I'll quote you someday about oh, it. You're, um, you're very kind, Steve. Thank um, you. um, 
But it's interesting because I was speaking with one a producer from Hollywood. I had him on the show a number of years ago who'd been the, one of the um, champions to help um, move through Battlestar Galactica, The X-Files, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and others. Wow. So I, I said, I, he, he, I, he'd been doing it for 25 years and choosing. And I said, when someone brings you an idea for a story, what is the first question you ask? Hmm. And he said, why are you the one to write this? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was shocked. I thought you, you'd think what's the character, what's the protagonist, the, the antagonist, the bad guy, what's the story arc or whatever. All of these things are, are so often brought up, but he's like, no, I want to know why you, why this is where you're passionate about yeah, this story. No, that's you're the one to write it. Um, so yeah. Starting in the end, yeah, it's so easy to forget that that's what storytelling is. It's someone desperate to share something. I mean, sometimes we get lost in story arcs and blackboards and whiteboards and that kind of thing. And actually we just have to go back to, to exactly what you said. Now um, there are always uh, different, maybe shows or movies or, or novels or something that don't fit, uh, I guess, a certain structure or that there are exceptions to the rules and, so on, like, how can storytellers best reach their audiences when shaping the stories they tell, knowing, um, like, you may know, or, or our listeners know, I wrote a book called Story Trump Structure a couple of years ago, and um, just the idea that what matters most is the story, whether or not it checks all of the certain, um, basically, structural boxes that different screenwriters and story authors and so on might say. And you know, some people would say a story has to have three art, uh, uh, acts. And I would, you know, say, I think, and you would too. Well, that's not really the case. So some stories have five acts or yeah, maybe two acts. acts or whatever it might be, but uh, sure. So, so, um, so how do we approach story storytelling with this idea in mind of the movement of the character through the story without letting, um, <coughs> without letting a certain structure actually like I think you mentioned, don't start with trying to check the boxes off, but start with what's passionate in, in your heart. Yeah, I think if you're a new writer, I mean, it, it depends where you are and what you're doing and who you're working for and who your audience is. And, and what I mean, brutally, what's your financial situation? Um, you know, if you're working for a show, then that show will have a format. And you will have a clear structural model that you have to fill. Uh, I mean, I actually spent a few weeks on Buffy the Vampire Slayer years ago. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Interesting. And it was such an education for me in Britain, seeing how a big show like that works. And it's very clear, you know, you find the app breaks. You know, you, there's five acts and you find the four app breaks and then you fill that in. And, you know, it's very quick and very efficient. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, like, I mean, when I, so in my, in my book, you know, what I don't say is use five acts. What right. I do is say, um, isn't it amazing if you go back and you look at the history of narrative structure from Terence to Shakespeare, it actually unlocks the secrets of all structure. So five acts is a passageway into discovering that shape that all stories have and that shape is dependent on a number of other things it is dependent on how long is the piece you're writing mm -hmm. you know the reason one of the reasons it's not the only reason one of the reasons shakespeare was written in five acts is simply because 
people need to go to the toilet. <laughs> you know, like so each act is, is 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 a correlation with the capacity of the human bladder you know, and your ability to stand up and listen. So, you know, like, you know, your job as a producer is to structure something so people will listen to it. And it comes out of that. Uh, well, you know, there's a couple of other elements involved, but but that's the, that's the key one. And, you know, but the under, if you go to anything from Tarkovsky to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Michael Haneke to Eisenstein to... Terminator 2 the underlying shape you can find uh, uh, the, you know I'm, what I just, what I, I use the metaphor the journey into the woods mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. to find the thing that's missing and then the journey to bring that back home I think that's the universal shape of all stories and you know you see it disrupted a lot the more art house you are the more that's disrupted but even in a film like Andre Rublev the Tarkovsky film where the protagonist is completely passive and it literally isn't in half the film and you have to be in the right frame of mind to watch it uh, <laughs> um you can see the shape because if you look at it carefully the baton is handed around all the time there's loads of different protagonists and actually the theme becomes the protagonist hmm. it is about an artist who creates this extraordinary work of art which halfway through is destroyed and then in the second half of the film, with a completely different series of characters, they rebuild another great work of art. Hmm. That's story structure. But it's just done in a really abstract, difficult way. But it reaches an audience and, and is kind of brilliant. It seems like most movies, the climax does not come in the middle. The climax comes much further in. So what's the difference between the midpoint of maybe of a novel or, or, or a movie or something like that, and actually what builds up to the climactic moment where the character either has to show he's changed or embrace his new uh, self or, or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. How do we understand that as far as being writers to navigate through those two important moments? Okay. No, it's, it's a really interesting question. It was one that I spent a lot of time on actually, because, because if you get one of the first people to write about narrative structure was a guy called Gustav Freitag in the (laughs) 1860s. And he says all Shakespearean tragedy is built around a pyramid shape. And he calls the middle of the story, the moment where Othello swallows the Argo's bait, the moment where Julius Caesar is shot, Hmm. um, the moment where King Lear is naked in a hovel and the storm on the heath. He calls that the climax. Hmm. And I read that years ago and I thought, that's just rubbish. Don't be silly. That's not the climax. The climax is at the end. Hmm. Um, But actually, it's a really interesting definition Um, because I think what you get in a a classic midpoint, for me, I mean, people can argue with this all they like and they must, is, you know, stories, stories are units of learning. They're units of knowledge. A character doesn't know something at the beginning. In the purest form, a character doesn't know something at the beginning. They learn it at the end. The midpoint of the story is the lesson. There's the lesson delivered. So, for example, in E.T., Elliot is selfish. Exactly halfway through E.T., he learns to be selfless. He phones home, helps E.T. phone home. And the second half of the story is him dealing with the consequences of that. He's testing that lesson. Is that lesson right? Is that true? Should I embrace it? Oh, I don't like it. I don't like being selfless because I'm going to lose my friend and now my friend's going to die. (gasps) Oh my God, yes, I will embrace it. Hmm. So you see this extraordinary relationship between the beginning, the middle and the end, which is built around opposites. 
Uh, and so you receive the lesson in the middle, you implement the lesson at the end. So if you look at The Godfather, the midpoint is obviously when he shoots Solotso and McCluskey, the two guys who tried to kill his dad. Uh, and it's the first time he embraces evil. And then the second half of the film are the consequences of that. And then he comes to the conclusion that, yeah, evil is the way to go. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't see it like that, but that's what he does effectively. And so the last act is the lesson he learned in the middle, he applies fully at the end. So would you say if people have in mind um, a certain lesson or agenda or something, so here's the one that, that just kills me. And I've seen it in almost so many movies. It's like, follow your heart, be true to yourself. (laughs) And it's like, if I see another movie where they tell me to follow my heart or be true to myself, I'm like, no, please. No, it's a a very bad lesson to give. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. in our culture, for whatever reason, it's become kind of the go-to, you know, for so many yeah, movies yeah. and so on. But, but um, how do we actually allow the character to pursue the change or or face his um, his flaw or his misbelief in a way that doesn't come across as us beating people over the head with "you should be friendly" yeah. or well, whatever it might be? Yeah. It underpins everything. But the minute you start saying it out loud and putting it in dialogue and referencing it, then you just go, oh, I'm going to be sick. Yeah, like, yeah. Stop, stop preaching at me. <laughs> but I think underneath it, you know, I mean, again, a really good follow your heart or version of follow your heart is actually the Shawshank Redemption. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's a really classic structure because at the beginning he's he won't say boo to a goose as we say in england he's very <laughs> nervy and he's very anxious and you know he, he like he just does what people tell him he's very law-abiding and he's wrongly imprisoned so we love him immediately uh and he's kind of imprisoned hmm. he is imprisoned. the midpoint of the shawshank redemption is that extraordinary scene very famous scene where you know he's in the governor's office and he suddenly goes oh and he locks the door and he turns on the speakers and he plays Mozart. Hmm. Or he's following his heart, hmm. isn't he? Just doing it. And it's freedom. Freedom. It's the right. image of freedom. And then the second half of the film is learning the lesson of freedom and then, of course, applying it at the end where he follows his, follow- well, he follows his will. He learns autonomy. He learns self-belief, which is, of course, the same as follow your heart, I think. Does that make sense? Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, and, uh, and I feel like, you know, the best stories do just what you said is uh, it's almost like the way I put it is the theme or the message or whatever you want to say is unspoken yet unforgettable. So yeah. it's like, we don't tell people what it is, but when they're done, there, there's something they're like, that was a powerful story. It, it moved me. Maybe I can't define it in a simple sentence, but, um, yeah. Well, there's John, a, I'm just going to say there's a brilliant lecture that Andrew Stanton uh, gives about uh, my journey of pain about screenwriting. And he talks about all of that. And his conclusion in the end was you give the audience two plus two and they add it up to four. Hmm. And that's all of screenwriting, I think. You trust you trust um, trust them yeah. to, you know, make the connections. 
Well, John, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Of course, I think I feel like we could talk for um, for hours, really, about all this stuff. And people would probably be, you know, bored by it. But, um, but I'm not so sure. Um, <laughs> probably, yes. Um, um, I love it. I love talking about this stuff. It's a bit. It's you know probably why I don't have that many friends. Oh my goodness! But um, is, um, before we close up, are there any other thoughts or encouragements you'd like to give to people who, you know, a lot of our listeners might be aspiring uh, storytellers? writers and so on what how would you encourage them to sort of pursue this um realm of creativity uh it's a long haul you know it's very few people can write brilliantly to begin with and writing is deceptively hard Mm. so yeah i mean it's not my analogy but it's it's like playing a musical instrument is you know you write every day practice every day it's a craft skill uh, and some people are dismissive of that. And my, my answer to that is this wonderful quote by Delacroix, uh, which is first learn to be a craftsman. It won't stop you from being a genius. Huh. Uh, and it's about craft. And so you learn the skills. You all the stuff you were talking about, subversion of expectation, all that stuff is craft skills. And, and you learn slowly and you get better and better and you never stop learning. Hmm. You know, so I think I, I I think it's that I keep going. But, yeah, like it's you know, you need some kind of financial support structure. <laughs> that's the that, unfortunate part. That's yeah. the bit that I can't help you with, sadly. Uh, but, you, no, know, right. like, you know, like, you know, you, you know, if you I mean, I, I worked for years doing rubbish jobs and I just wrote in my spare time and mm. I wrote little um, comic strips for, for huh. people who gave me enough to pay the rent. And, and that's how I started. Well, I'm glad that you stuck with it, and I'm glad that you wrote the book Into the Woods, and I'm enjoying it. And uh, whatever perspective people come from, organic or outlining, if they believe that structure is vital or that um, story, whatever their approach is, I'll just say I'm enjoying it. I'm finding it beneficial, and I feel like people will as well. I feel like you know it brings up interesting points and allows people to um, think about things in ways that really haven't been expressed in a lot of other books before. So, um, so I really recommend, I really recommend your book, John. And uh, is there a place online where people, where um, people can either find out more about your um, teaching uh, seminars that you might be doing around the world? Where's the best place for them? to? Uh, I have a website, uh, which is actually called John York story or one word that's York with an E. Uh, and most of it's on there. The book is available, uh, you know, through all the normal things. It's uh, it's it's a hardback in America. Uh, uh, we're about to think do a tenth anniversary edition. It's weird because it's been it's been really big in Europe, but in America, the, all the big publishers said, "Oh no, we've got our guru. We don't need another one." So, <laughs> so, so, so it's taken longer to burn through, but it's in the last couple of years. Um, you know, people have started to, to reference it now, which is lovely and, and brilliant. So uh, you can get in the States and there'll be a new edition along in a couple of years time, I'm hoping as well. That's fantastic. Yeah, it should be available. And we want everyone to check it out into the woods, um, a five act uh, journey into story. And uh, so I'd like to, um, you know, just wrap up by saying, John, thanks so much for your time and for your insights and, and uh, for sharing with us and Also, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. For more info about our guests and to check out our other interviews, you can look for us on, well, really anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or anywhere else, really. Or click to thestoryblender.com. And don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings.
As I mentioned earlier, the Story Blender is honored to be one of the sponsors of a premier fiction writing intensive November 5 and 6 coming up in just a few weeks. There are even 10-page critiques that are available. It's very extremely limited, so do check it out at fictionintensive.com if you're a writer and you might be interested in elevating your craft. And finally, I would close up by saying, tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.